This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. So this is this book is sort of the culmination of of a lot of work that I've done over a lot of years. Um, one of the chapters is is actually still drawn from my dissertation and and has sort of a parallel to an article that I wrote for Communication Quarterly. Uh, that's the chapter on on graduate students. Um, but it also it's, it was also very in a lot of ways a very personal book because I've occupied a lot of the different ladders uh, on the. On the academic labor, um, I don't even like to call it a ladder anymore because it's it's barely goes up any hardly. But the you know I was uh, a graduate student, of course. I was uh, an adjunct lecturer, sort of bopping around from lots of different colleges and universities, trying to make a living uh, for seven years, and then I walked into the sort of nether world of. Um, kind of full-time non-tenure track work before landing on the tenure track and then uh, becoming a professor a few years ago. Um, so, you know, it's it sort of, it, it is, and also, it, and this is also, I should point out, um, something that I've also done a lot of work with academic labor unions. And I'm just, just wrapping up now a stint as the president of our local chapter of the AAUP here at Oakland. So those are all the things that sort of led me to uh, writing this book. Well, yeah. And, um, so it's your interview. I want to talk more about the book. I will just add that you and I actually had very similar trajectories. I spent a lot of time as contingent faculty after I graduated. And in some ways, it was my own responsibility because I wasn't doing what I needed to do. But in other ways, it, it really is sort of a, a self-perpetuating cycle. And you know, they warn you that once you get into that, it's really hard to get out. And I have seen I mean, I get countless people just kind of wind up in that contingent labor position. And it, it does, right, it isn't a ladder. It's it's whatever the football players run through that have the ropes on it that's all vertical. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they're, all, they're all horizontal, sorry, all horizontal, right? It's just, you're just kind of moving left and right and left and right. And, yeah. and one of the things I've noticed is I got into my current tenure track position because I busted my ass for two years working way too many hours, setting zero boundaries, trying to be everything to everybody, hoping that it was going to result in me getting a job. And it did. And now when other adjunct faculty ask me like, oh, what did you do to get your line to turn into a tenure line? I don't even know what to tell them because I would never give someone the advice that I gave myself because there's no guarantee it'll work out, right? We still we still yeah. kind of have this myth that the hard work and, and, the, and, the, and the paying it forward into the university is going to reward you. But we see that happen over and over again, that it doesn't. And I am, I am the exception that proves the rule, right? Not, not an example of the rule. Yeah, I feel exactly the same way. I, I, as you said, I think that's a good way to put it. Um, I feel as if my career is very much the exception. Um, as a matter of fact, I mean, this is, you know, again, uh, leaving my, I, I'm right now the immediate past president of our faculty union. And the current president, and this is really unusual for academic labor unions, is herself a contingent faculty member. Um, we're, a, oh. we're, a mixed, we're a mixed chapter that represents both contingents and full-time tenure-track faculty, which is unusual enough as it is. Uh, but, but my friend, the, our current president, is herself a contingent. Mm. Uh, and it's just a testament to, to how great she is. But it's also a testament to the fact that here's someone who is extraordinarily well qualified, but who can't land a tenure track job. 
Right. Um, and and I don't think it's because of anything that she's done. Uh, it certainly has nothing to do with her talent. It has nothing to do with her skills or ability. Mm-hmm. It's just the fact that the, the academic labor system isn't producing uh, tenure line jobs right now. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, well, and this is, a, you, you get to this point really early on in the book, and we could go in, in, in multiple directions here, because it's not only a really, I mean, incredibly practically applicable book, but you do some really nice theory here. And you even come up with this concept, the cognitariat, which is, is pretty clever. And I think that has a relationship to, to what you call sort of the professoriate, which is, you know, the noun for the, the, the professor class and how the realities of that situation, especially for new and emerging faculty or people who have been on the market for maybe the last, like, I don't know, 10 years probably, sure. um, doesn't line up with how people imagine that, that life is working. And that's a huge problem, obviously, for labor negotiations. So do you want to talk about maybe the professoriate or the cognitariate, or is there another case study you want to look at? So the the idea of the cognitariate isn't isn't actually mine. I, I wish it were, but that actually came from uh, the Italian autonomist. Um, uh, gosh, I'm, for some reason, I'm seeing his nickname, but I'm not seeing his full name. Um, That's okay. Biffo, I'm, I'm, Biffo Berardi, um, and and you know he he uses it to describe, and I think one of the one of the hallmarks of it is you know a segment of the of the people who have to work for a living who for a lot of reasons um, find more joy and satisfaction in their work than they do in almost any other part of their lives. Mm-hmm. And, and this is, you know, it's sort of a guiding question that, that led me through all of this work um, is, you know, why is that, you know, and especially when I look around, um, you know, my colleagues in our department, but really even our colleagues across the university. And this this is especially the case when we start to try to get them into labor activism. Um, uh, I'll, I'll use this as a story because I think it I think it demonstrates the point. A few years ago, we were we were negotiating a contract. And of course, as part of that process, we were preparing to have a job action to go out on strike. And I was talking to a colleague and she said, you know, she was relatively new, had not done this before. And she told me, I don't know that I could go out on strike because I don't know that I could do that to my students. And, and I thought it was really telling because the, the sort of parallel would be if someone at General Motors refused to go out on strike because they couldn't imagine not making cars. Um, and, and the fact of the matter is, you know, teaching students and, and doing some of the other things that we do is what we're compensated for. And in a lot of cases, we're not fairly compensated for it. And the best way to demonstrate that fact is to stop doing it in some way, shape or form, either through uh, you know, some kind of a labor action. Um, and, and we just have a really like, I can't tell you how many discussions that I've had where faculty just have this block um, that they can't imagine themselves not doing uh, the thing that they have to stop doing in order to be respected for it. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting way of thinking about it because you do hear people sort of push back with, well, the intellectual labor is so rewarding. And you're sort of saying, well, well, maybe. Or it's yeah. the thing, or 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 it's your fantasy of intellectual labor that keeps you trapped doing labor, and and people say this all the time, like, what are you doing in academia? You could be making a ton of money doing this someplace else, and and some of it is obviously that I just enjoy the work I do more here, and I find it more valuable. But some of it is you get trapped in this idea of the cognitariat, yeah. And I didn't mean to imply that that was your term. I just meant I thought it was a really great pick for kind of the yeah. crux of of pulling all of these approaches together. And I, and I think it's an important term because I think in a lot of ways um, the faculty the faculty labor market it, we've sort of led the way um, f- and demonstrated the possibilities for other industries as to how you can reconfigure a labor market around a kind of core of stable full time relatively steady employment with a large circle of uh, contingent, really precarious labor uh, feeding it. 
Yeah, uh, and I see a lot of parallels between the way that we talk about academic labor to keep the fantasy alive. And I use the word you talk. We should talk about denial in a bit, but fantasy is just kind of what I call constructing something that isn't real, right? That that right. The, the, the 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 proof on the ground doesn't match up to what's in your head. So I know you don't use that word. It's just easy for me to to use. But and entrepreneurs. In fact, I, I make a joke that like we're all becoming professorpreneurs. Yes. And both of them, I think, sort of thrive on this idea that this intellectual, rewarding, building things from the ground up kind of labor is is going to somehow get us somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and really, I'll, I'll be, and I, I have to be honest with you, and maybe it's just a function of my age, but um, one of the things that I'm really poor at is that kind of um, entrepreneur, you know, it, and your term is great, prof- pro- if I can get it out, professorpreneurial um, yeah, right. <laughs> labor in, in self-promotion. Um, right after I finished the book, one of my one of my colleagues said, okay, now you have to go out on Twitter and start to promote it. And I just was like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, for, for just my own sort of hangups, but I, I recognize that increasingly that's just a necessity for people. But it comes down to the same thing, which is this idea that people, that if you just tweet enough, it's somehow going to make a difference. But we, we've seen that just over and over again, not to be true. I read the other day that the average person who, who is successful on Twitter tweets 15 to 30 times per day. Wow. To get a couple yeah. of mentors. So you'd have to tweet about this book 15 to 30 times per day, and every tweet would have to have value. I mean, when you start to look at the facts, it really just doesn't line up with what we think of as th- this like awesomeness of self-promotion and building a brand and all that. that. That's part of the fantasy, right? And it's similar to academics, which is what you talk about in the chapter where you talk about how we imagine the professoriate in, in public discourse and then what that looks like in the academy. Yeah. Even the phrase, the academy, I'm now realizing is problematic. <laughs> in, in a lot of ways, yeah, it is. Because yeah. again, it, it sort of it it sort of designates this really kind of separate space that um, that presumably looks a lot different than um, than the rest of the world. But I'm you know I'm not so sure that it is. Oh yeah, I mean I teach at a state school in in upstate New York, and it's you know we we live. I mean we are very much the real world for many of those students. Yeah. So I, I, I didn't realize that as much when I was teaching at a big R1 school down in the South where everyone is uh, like sort of a privileged college class, but I really get it now. So yeah, you want to talk more about maybe um, how denial functions in this situation or what the professoriate is and how that gets constructed? Sure. So, um, you know, the, the first two chapters were actually not the first two chapters because that, that's all sort of the, the theory building pieces of it. But the, the, the first sort of case studies have to do with um, the professoriate itself about, you know, the, the people who teach the, the, full, the thing that we, the people that we mostly think of as being professors, um, the full time tenure track or, you know, the full professors like myself. Um, and, you know, th- there's sort of two prongs to what I've identified as the concept of denial. One is just this sort of con- this notion of an overt denial. And I think we see this over and over again in a variety of different places. Um, I highlighted a few places where I th- that it seemed to be making the round sort of post-recession, um, where we see people saying, oh, the professoriate doesn't work, right? That, that what we do for a living when we walk into our classrooms, um, we don't do very much of that kind of teaching. Um, and so we're essentially uh, a pampered class of um, cosseted intellectuals who have an inflated sense of their own self-worth. Um, and that message gets sent out in as I said, a variety of different ways, the, the texts that I was examining particular in particular were these sort of post-recession um, lamentations on the state of higher education, which, of course, you know, completely ignored the fact that the reason it, all of them grappled with the same problem, which I think it really is a problem, which is the rising price of tuition for almost every college student in the country. And, and th- you know, that is a detestable state of affairs for all of our undergraduates and, and our graduate students. Um, 
tuition should not be nearly as high as it is. But of course, all of them can't look to the actual cause of that rising price, which is the sort of retreat of the state from offering any kind of funding whatsoever for higher education. And instead, they think that um, we can place all of the blame on the fact that we have these tenured profs who get to take a semester off every seven years and don't actually come to classes. Uh, they have their summers off, which is also, you know, one of the biggest jokes that I think exists in higher education is the idea of the summer off. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always tell people that summer is sort of when you get back to real work again, uh, yeah. having enjoyed the company. of Yeah. yeah good luck taking seven summers off and then getting tenure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> See how that works out for you. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, or even, you know, even after that fact, um, you know, good luck having the, getting, taking your summers off and, um, and earning a promotion to full professor or, yeah, right. or really, you know, and then even after that fact, um, with a lot of different schools starting to institute various versions of post-tenure review, you mm-hmm. know, that, that doesn't exist. Um, no. Yeah. Summers are the period of time where you sort of, um, you know, buckle down and actually do a lot of the work that is the thing that's going to earn you um, whatever kind of in- salary increases there are, are available to you. Well, and I think this is a good point for the listeners because, you know, I think one of the things that, that often gets mis- misunderstood is that just because you can think of a couple examples of, because, you know, I, I can I can right now think of a couple of examples of people who got tenure and are now resting on their laurels and, and doing exactly the kinds of things you're saying. But just because we can think of those few examples doesn't mean that collectively that is the, the what is happening, right? The, so the examples sort of prove the rule. And this is why this book is really important because it really does a lot of legwork to show, to lay the land in a way that really shows its misalignment with, I think, the, the public perception of what is happening. Yeah, I think there's, there's again, the, you know, when I talk to people outside of, outside of the university and, and they, they think about what it is, like, I mean, this is sort of a, this is kind of a weird story, but I was talking to my cousin's wife at a, at a funeral. We love, we love weird stories on the new books. Network, a, so. Good. Um, so I'm talking to my cousin's wife at a, at a funeral and we were having this discussion and, and my spouse had given me a, a something to hang in my office. And my cousin looks at his wife and says, Hey, that's a good idea. Why don't you, why don't, why don't you ever give me something to put in my office? And she looked at me and, and she looked at me and says, well, because he's a professor, he has a nice office. And, and I was sort of imagining in my head what she was thinking of when she thought of sort of the professorial office, you know, and I was thinking of the, of the television show Friends, right? When, when Ross was yes, um, right. a professor at the, at the university and, you know, there's this great big wooden desk and um, every, every faculty, you know, every professor's office that appears on television um, looks like it just stepped out of the set of the Gilmore girls or something. And, uh-huh. um, and, and that just is nothing like the reality of what most of us at state schools um, are working in. I mean, my desk is something from, as a matter of fact, you know, it, thinking about the Gilmore girls, my desk is a surplus from the Korean War that I saw um, in an episode of um, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel um, mm. back to the 1950s. So you know that's about how frequently they update you know the 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 spaces that we work in. Yes, um, I work in the first women's dorm on campus, so I have an enormous oh. office that is surrounded with asbestos, and we can't drink yeah. out of the water. So, yeah. so right, and, and I think there's a lot of paradoxes here, and and that's one one thing the book is really good at pointing out is is that that these myths survive because there are remnants of them circulating. So that's not to say that I don't have a huge office, but it's also also to say that a lot of the baggage that comes with this idea of the prof- the, the professor office is maybe not in alignment with how most people are experiencing life these days. Right. And, and, and even then, you know, the, what we're, we're really, you know, the, the focus here is on those, you know, 30% of us or so who, who are fortunate enough to be on the tenure track, um, who are fortunate enough to sort of be on the ladder um, and leaving aside the new faculty majority, the, the 70% or so, who are who are teaching the bulk of the classes are contingent faculty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I work with several faculty members who are contingent who routinely lose their voices 
and get bronchitis and other kinds of ailments because they are lecturing hundreds of students multiple times a day, especially at the beginning of the semester when they're doing all of the legwork to say, teach the safety measures for the biochem classes. And, you know, their health is at risk and they don't get paid very well. And and actually, and so to bring this back to the book, you make a comment um, that academic labor, so so, uh, this is on page uh, 63. The difference between academic labor and other forms of labor renders the former strange beyond recognition. Yeah. So, so this is sort of, so again, the, the, you know, the, the first case study is about how people uh, have framed academic labor and essentially sort of denying that, um, that we do enough teaching for it to constitute a real job, that the, the service that we perform really just sort of gets in the way of actually of the university functioning. Um, they have some, people have some especially nasty things to say about academic labor unions there. Oh um, yeah. And, I'm part of our labor union and it's, it's pretty vicious. Yeah. And, uh, and of course that the, the research that we write isn't worth the paper that it's written on. Um, and, but then there's this other, there's this other form of denial. I think that we as academics are susceptible to that I've called a kind of repressed denial mm. where, we 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 ourselves conceptualize our labor as this very one we think of it as being different right and i think i i found um a chapter by saeed uh, edward saeed where he talks about um you know being pulled aside early on in his career by someone who said, tells him that um academic labor is you know very strange because uh, and that ultimately it's it's all much better than working, right? Like, and, and that what we do isn't actually work because we get to go into the classroom and we get to talk about Plato and Aristotle or, you know, whatever it is that we're, or, you know, the Gilmore Girls, I guess. Um, and, <laughs> and that, you know, there's this sort of ratcheting up that happens in, in this denial where the basic, the basic framework is that that may all be true, but it comes at the cost of us having to effectively erase the boundary that exists between work and non-work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I thought um, an article that Stanley Aronowitz wrote on this mm-hmm. topic was especially telling where he, he, he writes his work, he writes a work diary where he kind of describes in really exacting detail uh, all of the stuff that goes into a working day. And, you know, looking at it from the outside, it was just, it was sort of just exhausting to read, let alone think about what it would be like to live through all of that. And then he just sort of makes the claim that, but it's okay because I really enjoy doing all of this. So it doesn't really feel like labor to me. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that's the case for a lot of us. Um, you know, I was, I was telling a friend that, you know, since we're all in quarantine, and I, I said one of my first projects was to um, power through Thomas Piketty's Capital and Ideology. And so in a few weeks, I, wrote, I read this thousand page book on the history of income inequality. Um, and my son kept asking me, he's like, is that for work or is that because uh-huh. you're yeah. And I said, well, yes, both, neither. <laughs> Yeah, my partner's always saying, I can never tell if you're working or just on the computer. And I was like, it's all the same. It's all <laughs> it's the no, same. There's nowhere. But that's also a myth I tell myself because sometimes it's not. And, and so, I mean, so it all gets kind of tangled up um, in ways that are, which is kind of your point. It, it's not whether it's bad or good. It's just, it's happening and it has consequences, right? And some of those consequences are fine because some people don't care about, you know, getting stooped over while they sit at their computer for hours a day toiling away. And some people find it extremely emotionally draining and some people aren't given health benefits and some people aren't properly compensated. And so it's, it's really, like I said, just a lay of the land. It's not a bitch fest about academic labor. It's very much just kind of a fair assessment about the ways it's getting constructed and the consequences that that might have. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, one of the consequences, and this is this is probably something I should have elaborated on in in the conclusion more than I did, but I think we're we really sort of set a bad example for our students in a lot of ways. 
That is when... Totally agree. Oh, I yes, absolutely. You should write a separate paper on this. I would read it for sure. Yeah, I, I think it's I, I think, you know, we we are so heavily invested in this idea that you have to do what you love, even if it means not necessarily getting fairly compensated for it, that we 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 send that value off to the people that we, you know, and, and I think this, I think in a weird way, I think the students, they read it. Um, yeah, oh yeah. They, may, oh, yeah. they may not understand the details, mm-hmm. but I think they get it. I mean, I, I, they know that our contingent counterparts are not being paired, paid a fair wage. And yet they continue to walk into the classroom every day and do mm-hmm. what amounts to a phenomenal job being there. Yeah. And and I think it it devalues all of our work. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um th- they do get it. And I know that because I'm the advisor to our student newspaper. Oh and yeah. And they write and they write a lot about faculty labor negotiations and issues with contingent faculty and course overload and workload creep. I mean they really are tuned into these things. Yeah, and then and and then but even beyond that I think it's sort of the the value of you know, put your work first above yeah. almost anything else that comes in your life yeah. um, that they carry with them when when they go into into the workplace. Um, you know, I I haven't written you know I haven't written the spe- specific paper, but I do have an article in in Western um, mm-hmm. that talks about you know the the trend. Well, it, it's about how we've come to accept unpaid internships. Oh, I know they are so exploitative. I hate them. Yeah. Yeah, and in, in, in New York, they actually passed a law, but it still allows college credit to to seep through the the, the cracks. So as long as you're getting college credit, you can still have an unpaid internship. Right, like that makes a difference. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, um, well. Speaking of students, I mean, one one of the things I thought I don't know if this was something that happened naturally or if you just kind of knew that this was a good move. But you have several chapters where you talk about students as not only being cognizant of what's happening, but also being actively part of the labor force that's kind of, you know, participating in this cluster of contradictions. And you talk about graduate student unions, and you also talk about student athletes, which was really fascinating. So I don't know if you want to maybe talk about a little bit more because we, we haven't talked, um, for example, about chapter three does, a, I think it's chapter three, does a great job of looking at critics of the professoriate and the way that they sort of circulate these problematic ide- idealizations of our lives in, in pop culture so that people kind of, yeah, exactly get this like bad taste in their mouth about what teachers do. And I think that's important too, because it also seeps over into K-12, because you hear people talking about K-12 oh. teachers and their summers off. And it's like, I wouldn't trade lives with a K-12 teacher for all the money oh. they don't get paid. Oh, yeah. No, there's- so, so It all gets clustered together in really problematic ways. And and, and I think, well, I, I would hope, and I, I maybe I have too much optimism, but I would hope to God that one of the effects of all of this quarantine business is that some of these parents who are with their kids- um, yeah. see some of some portion of the work that it takes to actually teach K through 12 and, and maybe rethink some of those assumptions. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, I mean, one would hope because K-12, I mean, even more in some ways, I think, than than at least tenure track faculty, K-12 faculty are undervalued for sure. Oh, there's no question. Yeah, but 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 graduate. I thought graduate students were a really good example too, because graduate students are a huge exploited labor market that often flies under the radar because it seems like going to graduate school is already kind of such a bourgeois luxury. Who cares about how they're treated, sort of thing? Yeah, it is, uh, and a lot of people, a lot of people have that have that idea. But the fact of the matter is that you know, graduate students across the country at any number of institutions. Um, have been have been resisting that idea. Uh, yeah, well, and you know, you know, I'm being sarcastic, right? 
What's that? Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. I said, and then I, was like, oh, no, I hope he doesn't think that's what I think. I just meant I think oh, that's no. the. Perfect. Oh, <laughs> oh, absolutely not. No, I, I got it. Um, no, I think anyone who I think anyone who has been through the graduate student mill, I, I'm not sure that you could. I'm not sure that you could come to that conclusion. Um, no, it's it's um, you know graduate students across the country are probably in a lot of ways at the forefront of trying to reimagine what the university might look like in the future. Um, the biggest problem that they face, obviously, is that they're only at their only at their institutions for a finite period of time, um, which makes them really an interesting segment of the of the of the workforce to try to organize, right? Because they don't have by almost by definition the kind of institutional memory that it takes to fight against the um, some of the worst elements of administrative control that there are. Um, I just got off, I, not about a year ago, I got off the phone with um, someone who was contacting our union for advice on contracts, and they had, they had uh, undergone a 20-year campaign to win recognition for their faculty union. And, and, you know, and you think about that. And, 20 years. Wow. Yeah. It, it was, I can't remember the name of the institution. It was in Pennsylvania. Um, and, and they, but if you think about it, that's possible because, you know, the, a professor can be in a job for 20 years. If you're talking about graduate students, you know, if the system is doing its job even remotely well, they're moving on in seven years. And that means that they've got to train the newest people to come in and sort of pick up the fight and continue it. And so the leadership is sort of constantly morphing and evolving. Um, But these are the folks, you know, I think we use them up for cheap labor for a period of time and then send them off into a work world where there's literally almost no uh, jobs of any consequence for them to take. You know, they're, they're coming out and they're getting at best contingent work. Um, the, the, the chapter is mostly about the, um, the 95 Yale grade strike where graduate assistants at Yale university trying to win recognition for their, for their fledgling union, um, withheld their grades at the end of the semester simply to prove that they were actually doing work that they were actually performing labor for the institution. And, and there are a variety, you know, and this is unfortunately one of those things that changes with administrations. But whenever we get a Republican-dominated National Labor Relations Board, the definition of graduate student labor shifts to the, the idea that, well, since they're students, they can't be workers. Um, and then we get Democrats in charge of the NLRB, and it shifts, and we get the the idea that well they can be workers even though they are students, mm-hmm, right. and, and I think at some point we just need to come clean and say look, like at our institution we're at we're a relatively small school not small we're twenty thousand or so, um, but oh you're you're huge compared to my institution <laughs> okay so, but but we're not you know but we're not in R one right no no definitely um, not yet. But what has it, so we don't have a lot of graduate students on campus. But one of the things that we we just started a small master's program in our department, and one of the things that we keep seeing are students who are hired in to do work in some department, often athletics or someplace else, and then told to go find a degree program. So the job comes first. And then they think about what degree they might want to earn. Yeah, that's interesting because I, speaking of Twitter, I got in a little bit of a Twitter tiff the other day because someone posted, it's don't go, don't go into debt to go to grad school. And, and they were commenting on if you get accepted to a grad school, but you don't get funding. And I was like, well, kind of, but I mean, it depends how much debt, it depends on how much you're going to get out of grad school. It depends on your other options. I mean, there are other reasons not to apply to a to a competitively funded program, like the fact that there's a toxic culture of competition. Yes. 
Um, but like this idea that just like, no, 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 all debt is bad, not worth grad school. I was like, what if it's 10 grand for four years of a PhD? I mean, that might be something. I mean, it was just, it was just this blatant, no, it's bad now. And I was like, well, let's not just take the exact opposite stance. Let's give people realistic expectations and help guide them through decision-making. But it's like, people have gotten so caught up now in this idea that going to grad school is exploitative that now you see the opposite thing happening, which is just all grad school is bad, get a job first and then go to grad school. It's like, well, those are both just choices, right? And we need to help people navigate choices, not just turn everything into an all or nothing. And in a lot of ways, and and this is this is just my personal experience, but I did my PhD unfunded. Um, I didn't I didn't have to take out any debt, but I because this was this was back a few years, um, but I just paid for it out of my pocket. Um, mostly, it was because um, I was sort of trapped in the. I had a health insurance plan through uh, because of our labor union. Um, and I couldn't move on to a graduate student health insurance plan because they excluded my type one diabetes and I could not have paid, I could not have paid for those expenses out of pocket. Um, but the other reason in, that I'm still thankful for it is because as you said, the comp- the toxic competitiveness of graduate programs, especially in those fully funded things, um, are, yeah, it, enough said they're toxic. Yeah. And, and, and then this is what I think is important about your book is that there is no one size fits all solution. So even if you read this whole book, you're not going to come away thinking graduate school sucks. Right? Like there are just problems and there are discourses about those problems that get circulated as if they are the truth. And we need to really be pushing back because there are many reasons, good reasons to go to graduate school. But yeah. there are also huge problems with the way that graduate students are treated, especially in non-unionized environments, which unfortunately now is most places. And you know, America is really hostile to unions right now, and that's it's been really awful for graduate students trying to unionize. We tried to unionize when I was at Georgia in the early 2010s, and it was not happening. I, I once, when when I was working on my dissertation, I was writing about graduate student unions. I got on the plane to NCA. Um, and I was, it was with someone who was, uh, coming from Georgia. So we, you know, he was being, he was on a connecting flight and I told him and he just laughed at me. Yeah. <laughs> like, like the very, the very idea of, of him joining a union was just, was just completely laughable in his mind. Yeah. Um, and, and I, you know, again, and I think that's, I think that's true for a lot of people. Um, but I, you know, I, I still mean, for the most part, I still maintain that graduate, that unions can make our lives better. Yes, and I am part of a union and my father threatened to disown me for joining a union because he said we were all thugs. And I was like, we sit in meetings and talk about health benefits. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what it comes <laughs> down to. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, if you, and I think, Probably the place where I'm most ambivalent is in the chapter, and I'm, ambivalent is the wrong word, but the the place where I find it most problematic is in the chapter on uh, student athletes. Yeah, actually, uh, and let's move there because we haven't talked about student athletes, and I'd really like to come back to your chapter on contingent faculty because I think we touched on it, but I think there's more to be said. So yeah, tell us about the chapter on student athletes and your takeaways from that. So the the chapter on contingent athletes begins with the a case study with um, Northwestern University athletes who tried to form a labor union um, because and you know Northwestern's you know Northwestern is Northwestern uh, not the greatest football school in the world but uh, has a great academic reputation um, but these students there voted to join in, I think it's absolutely delightful, joined, voted to join the United Steelworkers. Um, and that, you know, and that's another place where I think students, graduate students and, and uh, these, these folks at Northwestern, I think it's absolutely fantastic that some of these non, well, trying to think of the right way to put it. Some of these people who aren't the professoriate are choosing to affiliate themselves with traditional blue collar labor unions. So graduates, the, the largest graduate, the largest represent representative of graduate students in the country is the United auto workers. 
uh, because they organized all of the University of California system plus a number of others another number of other schools. Uh, I think they were resp- I think they are involved in the NYU um, efforts as well. Uh, and then you've got graduates, then you've got the student athletes who are trying to join the steel workers union. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if there's, this is, this is, again, this is one of the conversations that I had, but my grandfather was the president of his UAW local. And he oh, started, fun. he started to read my dissertation. Um, and he, he looked up at me at one point and he was in his eighties at this point, And he said, who at Solidarity House, which is the headquarters for the UAW, talks like this, mm-hmm. right? And and I think it, you know, in some ways, I've been I've been sort of mulling around that question for a long time, and trying to I, I would like to do some sort of almost like an ethnographic uh, work mm-hmm. on what that relationship looks like between auto workers and steel workers or the service employees international union um, and the traditional academic labor unions, because we have, we have trouble in, in our union of even affiliating with. um, So in higher education, there's three main in education. There are three main unions, right? There's the NEA uh, national education association, the American Federation of teachers and the AAUP. Mm -hmm. And, only the AFT is affiliated with the AFL-CIO. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people, like there are all kinds of benefits to being affiliated with the AFL-CIO. Um, I mean, you saw this in the graduate student case um, where because, the gradu- because graduate students were attempting to organize through the UAW, at one point, the University of California system took a hardline stance on them. The UAW dropped a check into their account, and the California system started to talk. So, you know, there's all kinds of benefits to those kinds of resources, um, but we, but for reasons of, and again, I think it's, I think it's this notion of denial that somehow we're different or other than um, other kinds of labor that we just won't affiliate with with steel workers or auto workers or service employees or any, you know, communications workers, et cetera. Um, well, and I think, I think that that's a cornerstone of how anti-union efforts work, right? You need like unions depend on coalition building and yeah. I'm not saying there's some giant conspiracy. I'm just saying the way that everything has come together, the, the, the hostility and it's similar to other coalition building. I mean, you saw when like Occupy Wall Street tried to create affiliations among immigrants, student workers, steel workers, the audio industry. And it kind of worked a little bit, but those animosities among those groups, again, exactly like you talk about in the book, because there's this sense that some labor is real and other labor is false. And the real labor is always your labor and the false labor is always the other person's labor. makes it really hard to build coalitions among those people. And that's very good for anti-union sentiment. Yeah. Although, you know, Although I don't know if it's so much that, you know, some like, for instance, we had, um, you know, we're talking about membership in our union and there was a a member of the nursing faculty who said, am I in the union because I don't want to be because I don't want to have any part of unions. Hmm. Um, And not because she didn't, I don't think it was because she didn't respect what she did. It was that that's something that blue collar workers do. That's something that. Um, oh, interesting. And it doesn't, it doesn't afford with my status as a professional, which is why I think our young, you know, the, the, the student athletes and the graduate students are so fascinating because they just apparently don't seem to care very much. Um, the UAW will represent their interests. They join the UAW. The steel workers yeah. will help them out. Right. They'll join the steel workers. Um, and, and I think, I think that's a healthier perspective than to say, oh, I'm a college professor, therefore I can't be in this kind of institution. I mean, really, you know, this was, this is another one of those, those personal moments that, that brought me to this project was, you know, the first time I was on strike and I'm standing out in front of the university and I'm holding my picket sign and I'm with a bunch of other faculty um, I was a contingent at the time, so I was sort of scared for my life because I didn't know what this was going to mean for me. Um, and a, a truck driver pulled up 
and went on the road next to the university, walked up to us and said, hey, I don't want to cross your picket line, but I've got these deliveries that I'm supposed to make. What do you want me to do? Sure. And, and, you know, the right answer is drive away and don't make your deliveries, right? Honor all picket because we're we're all, you know, we're all laboring together. But all of my faculty cohort were just like, ah, go on in. It'll be fine. And it's like, you know, I don't know that this is the way it's supposed to work. Right. You know, I mean, yeah, you know, but again, I think it's because, you know, they don't, they didn't want to think of themselves as being in the same, the same category as Teamsters. Well, yeah, and that's and it's a again, it's a discourse, and I think this is what's really important about your book is that these these things are not just set in stone, but they're how we've been taught to think and talk about our relationship to Teamsters, and that relationship could change. Oh, absolutely, right? Yeah, and the, yeah, right. and you do some really good stuff with the student athletes talking about this concept of amateurism. Yeah, and it, um, it made me think of what you said about the nurse and how like they're a professional, and so and how these these classifications create these art like well they're not artificial they're very real but these perceived real yeah. boundaries that also sort of could be places where we could create more coalitions yeah absolutely and and again the 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 chapter on on, on student athletes is was in a lot of ways the hardest one but because there is so much complexity that goes into um what happens with student athletes um yeah. i mean the first thing is i think you know, we all have to, I think we all have to acknowledge that, especially in the revenue producing sports, uh, mostly men's basketball and men's football, um, those students are in no way, shape or form uh, student athletes. I mean, they are brought to campus for for almost the sole reason of producing, using their bodies in order to entertain us all and, and turn a profit for the institution. Yes, I have some real horror stories of teaching football players at a D one school in the South and the, and like, if they're not labor, I mean, if they're not labor, I'm definitely not labor. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, which is to say they're labor, I mean, through and through. And, and that's even, you know, we're, we're a D one school. We don't have a football team, but we have a basketball team, but we're sort of, we're sort and this is, and this is where the complexities come in. I mean, Georgia is one of the power five conferences. So, those folks at least have, I mean, it, it's slim, but you can at least sort of squint and imagine that one day that they can use their their skill on the on the field to make a living at something. Um, we're at a Division One school that's sort of in one of the non power non Power Five conferences, and and our basketball players put in ungodly number of hours. And and there's no way that any of them are ever going to turn a living um, playing basketball. Um, it's just not possible. That their only their only hope is to get the degree. But they're putting in so many hours at what they do that getting that degree is it, it's a challenge. It's a it's a real uphill climb for a lot of them. Solely because of, I think, the time and investment that it takes. And, and of course, the fact that they live and die by um, what the coach tells them to do. They, they almost have no way of resisting management orders, right? Because they don't have any organized voice to be able to say, these are the limits that, that I can practice and still be able to uh, go to school and earn my education. And so even if even if there isn't necessarily a union, um, the biggest thing that has to happen, I think, for student athletes is that they need to have some kind of collective voice in decision making. Whatever that ends up looking like, it, they yeah. need to have some way of saying what what is possible uh, for their work lives while they are in school. Yeah. Mm hmm. Do you um do you see any do you see any possibilities to connect student labor with contingent faculty? In what sense? Well, like do you see their struggles as somehow aligning? Because I've noticed that at least on our campus, the contingent the the, the student athletes and and other types of exploited student workers, like the work study students who get paid sub minimum wage, for example, right? Because it's work study. Um, they have deep sympathies for what the contingent faculty are going through in a way that I think that some students who are not, who are not students who work, 
they are students who do not work, right? Um, right. Do not like not that they don't have sympathy, but they just aren't in the same boat. And so it seems to me like that's where interests are already aligned. But I can't, I can't imagine a way. I mean, just thinking off the top of my head about how they could work together. But it does seem like there's a lot of potential there. I think that's probably one of the the hardest questions. Is yeah. is there a way to align the interests of because you know align the interests of a lot of these different uh, labor groups because I mean, yeah, you and I don't about, mean to put you on the spot. That's always what everybody wants to ask, right? Okay, well, you've written this book now. What do I do about it? Yeah, but yeah, yeah, I, yeah. the book is valuable in the sense of giving you a new perspective on the lay of the land, and that's what I loved about the book. I mean, this is not this is not this is only one of many steps to strategizing, but it's a great early step is to understand from your perspective what's happening. Yeah, it, but but I do think that's an important question, yeah, um, I, and it would be. You know, the, uh, um, because there there have been increasing efforts. I was just reading about it someplace where undergraduate students who do things like um, residence halls assistance, right, are starting to organize oh, yeah. themselves. Because you know, again, you're talking about a, a class of employee that puts in just absolutely ungodly number of hours at the work that they do. Um, and, and they're supposed to be grateful because, you know, they get a room in the dorm um, and a small stipend. Um, and, and increasingly they're finding, no, I'm, you know, I'm making sub-minimum wage based on the number of hours I'm putting in at this. And they're organizing to try to, uh, you know, level the playing field a little bit. And so, yeah, the, you know, in, in an ideal world or in a better world that, that, we should do something to try to unite all of these factions of people who work for the university. Um, but again, you know, we have, we have trouble even, even in our union, keeping the, the alliance between contingents and, and um, our tenure track faculty together. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't, I don't know that there's any easy answers to those, to those things. Uh, yeah, but, but one thing this book is great for is I've already, I've already, uh, we've, we've purchased a copy for our faculty, um, for our UUP office and also one for the library. And I've already sent emails to several people letting them know they really should pick up this book because it, oh, it gives a lot of language to problems that is really helpful. I think that's one of, you know, the biggest value of, of, of critical rhetoric is that it gives you yeah. like discourses of denial, like professoriate, like these are terms that are very um, approachable in the book. And they, I think anybody can understand them. And also this idea that labor is not, is that there aren't really different kinds of labor in, in a real sense, or labor is labor in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, at some point, you know, everybody has to go to work to put food on the table and a roof over their heads. And, and when you do something like that, and, and even, even for us, you know, the, the tenure track faculty, you know, I get, you know, Obviously, one of the upsides is that I can sit down and I can write a book that is critical of my employers. Sure, um, and and that's you know, and I don't want to I don't want to downplay um, any of the freedom that 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 entails. Right. But at the same time, uh, I have to write a book about something in order to continue my employment um, in, in any sort of reasonable way, in order to continue to earn raises, and in order to continue to be a member of my academic community. And, and whenever we are under the direction, even in that loose sense of someone else, I think we're working for a living. And when people work for a living, I think they, they are better served by having a collective sense of what that means. Well, and I think the collective is important here because certainly any one of us can look at this and you're really like, this is a book about a system. This is not a book about the professoriate. It's not a book about student athletes. It's not a book about labor unions. I mean, it really looks at a system of labor just in a, in a specific industry, right? If we want to use that term. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, and it's easy to say like, oh, well, I'm different than a student athlete. But at the end of the day, if, if we need to make change, you're going to have to find ways to build connection. And this book is a great way of finding ways to both validate your feelings of difference, but also recognize your opportunities for connection to other people's labor struggles. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. again, even though, you know, um, 
even though we are different, um, we're all sort of working for the same folks. Right. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, at this point in history, like we're all working for basically the same people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and really, you know, and especially, you know, especially these days, you know, academic institutions are being led by people who are not academics. I know, and yes. and so you know the the fact that they're coming from industry, the fact you know, like we just had someone leave our our university. Um, I mean, this is a bizarre story, also, but um, we had a guy who was on the board of trustees. He was an executive at uh, Chrysler Motors, and um, one minute he's on the board of trustees, and then the next day he resigns from the board of trustees, and the day after that he was hired to be the chief operating officer of the university. And I know, one, oh, I know, oh my God. It, uh, on one level, it's like the the ultimate form of sort of crony capitalism. Um, on another level, um, it's this idea that universities need business people to lead them because academics are so weird that we can't do it ourselves. Which I would argue is another one of these myths because it's like, well, everyone really needs organization. I just don't necessarily think it needs to be top-down autocratic organization. But to say that like one group is more capable of leading themselves than another is. No, it's absurd. Yeah, it's it's and and unhelpful. I mean, even if you believe it's true, I mean, I tell my students this all the time. Like, there's what you know is true from personal experience, and then there's what is helpful for you to think. And even if I think my labor is different than a teamsters, at this point in history, with like the threat that like fair work wages are under, do we really want to keep that thought? <laughs> is it helpful, right? I I don't. Um, yeah, I don't. Right. I, and I don't, number one, I don't believe it. But number two, even if I did, it's not get, it's not getting any, anywhere but more divide and conquer. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and this is oh, this conversation is so good. We have barely even skimmed the surface of this book, which I have already recommended to ten people, and I probably will recommend it to everyone I meet who is interested in any of these issues. Do you want to touch on anything else before we wrap? Um, you know. I- no, I, I I know I, I've listened to some of your other um, some of your other um, interviews. Um, so I just I, I I know one of the questions that you sometimes ask at the end is to is to pitch another book. Oh and yeah, so, if you want to get there, that's my sign off question. So if you feel like we we've, yeah. we've covered everything about the book that you really want to highlight, I'd love to hear about a recommendation you might have for a new book for the next interview. Sure, I'm, and I'm going to I'm going to recommend um, a couple of my colleagues have just finished a book, and this is another great one of those. It's another great example of the kind of coalition building that um, that I think we're talking about here, and that I think is necessary not just in labor, but really it's sort of across our culture. Uh, mm-hmm. But my colleagues um, Rebecca Ferruja and Kelly Hay. Uh, have just released their book, Women Rapping Revolution. Ooh. And rapping like Christmas rapping or rapping like hip hop rapping? Hip hop rapping. Uh, oh, yeah. that sounds amazing. Yeah. So um, it's a, it's the, it's a, the culmination of, I think it was a seven year ethnographic project um, that my colleagues undertook in the city of Detroit working with a women's collective that was producing um, women's oriented rap. Um, And and I'm not going to pretend to know very much more about it other than, um, you know, it's really about that kind of uh, building relationships and, and working in coalitions and the tensions that are involved in it but also the, the kind of revolutionary possibilities that can come out of trying to look past differences. And, and, uh, and, and as you put it, I think very well, um, seeing, seeing what kinds of thoughts actually work for us in, in working together to resist some of the, the insanity that's going on in the world. Yeah, and they have, I just looked it up while you were talking, they actually have the foreword written by Mahogany Jones, who is, yeah. Uh, yeah, who is like a, a really like, uplifting sort of like women's empowerment hip hop artists. So that's amazing. I'm going to reach out to them right now. Well, Tom, this has been an awesome conversation. I just want to leave everyone with one of my favorite sentences that comes out of actually just the book description on the website. And that is this, 
The professoriate is therefore not a retrograde figure of a more genteel time, but the emblematic figure of late capitalism's transition to cognitive labor and with it an unceasing colonization of the human life world. So stellar sentence. I think it wraps up the conversation well. And I cannot recommend enough that everyone pick up a copy of Discourses of Denial from Rootledge from 2017 by Tom DeSena. Also, just a reminder, um, we work very closely, the New Books Network, with presses like Rootledge and other university presses because they really put in a kind of um, underpaid effort to try to get our work out, as do we put in a lot of money to get these books published. It's yeah. not like a traditional. So anyone thinking that we get $50,000 book advances like they do on TV, <laughs> uh, most of our most of our books, we actually lose money on to pay yeah. for the copyright. But we do appreciate what the presses do because they help at least increase the quality of the ideas. And even if you don't want a copy for yourself, uh, you can request one for your public library or your university library. You can also buy a hard copy. Uh, they, they like hard copies. So a paperback will work and you can donate it. And then that way, these ideas are on the shelf for people that would love to have access to them. And you're also helping reward everyone for academic labor and other kinds of labor as well. So once again, you can pick that up. Um, I see that we actually have it listed on the New Books Network. So if you Google Discourses of Denial New Books, it's up there and you can purchase right from the website. Otherwise, Tom, is there anywhere that people can reach out to you if they want to chat or have any thoughts on your your book? Oh, absolutely. Uh, You can reach me at my uh, email address. Uh, It's uh, my last name, Desena, D-I-S-C-E-N-N-A, at oakland.edu. Wonderful. And I'll put that in the show notes for anyone that's listening uh, on their commute, if and when we ever commute again, and that you <laughs> that you would like to um, click there and let Tom know what you thought or ask more about how you can find the book. So Tom, once again, great to listen uh, to everything you had to say today. Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and we will see you or hear you next time on the New Books Network. 